Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of Down the Pub on History Hacks. Say yay, everybody. Yay. yay we're all down here in our virtual boozer the mary rose um and tonight we are debating the greatest warlord of the ancient world only now have we thought hmm what's our definition of warlord so lindsay powell is with us who is a editor of ancient history magazine lindsay give us a definition well, I'm actually the news editor. It would be horrible of me to claim a, a, a title to, like a warlord that I'm not probably in <laughs> So here's, here's the definition I get off my beautiful Mac machine, which tells me a military commander, especially an aggressive regional commander with, an in, with individual autonomy. So it's a military commander, especially an aggressive regional commander with individual autonomy. I think everyone that people have selected qualifies on that basis. And if they don't, oh, well, um, they probably won't win. <laughs> As ever, whoever whoever wins, uh, their warlord, uh, I will, because in my previous incarnation, I was a, a nightclub manager and cocktail bartender, I will design a cocktail in honour of the warlord um, to go with our Vlad the Impaler cocktail from last week. Um, we have with us today, Emma Southern is back, who made an outstanding uh, <laughs> argument for Julius Caesar as the nastiest bastard of all time last week in our Greatest Villains podcast. Hey, Emma. Hello. It's already, a shame that I already God. wasted Julius Caesar because he would have been a good one to do this time as well. <laughs> do you know what I think, actually, that most of these people will possibly fill the bastard criteria from last week as <laughs> There's well. a lot of an overlap in that. I Venn think diagram. so. Um, we've all already heard from Lindsay. Lindsay's coming to us from Austin, Texas. We have uh, Tony Keane with us, who is a teacher for Notre Dame, uh, Notre Dame, whatever you want to call it in America. Great university, but in the UK. Um, he's going to argue um, his case for us today. Hey, Tony. Hi. Uh, we also have our enthusiasts. Um, to be honest now, if we didn't invite James down the pub with us every week, it'd just be plain bitchy. So James is back. Hey, James. Hey, Alex. He also always puts in uh, really a lot of effort in picking something outside the box as well. Um, so we feel it would be churlish not to invite him. And also, I invited Clive back because of his impassioned debate uh, last week and because it just annoyed Holmes and Dyer so much because he was so <laughs> adamant that he was right. So Clive's back to annoy them some more. Hey, Clive. Hi, I'm right again this week, which is... You cool. are right again this week. <laughs> I love Spoken like a true solicitor. And as ever, our judges are Holmes, my co-author, partner in crime, etc. on several books. Hey, Holmes. Good evening. And Johnny Dyer, who's also collaborated with us on a number of World War One books. Hey, Johnny. 
Hello. How's everyone doing? Any new stories in the world of Corona this week? I haven't got it. You haven't got it. Excellent, Holmes. How's it? Are you? Oh, you haven't had it for years. <laughs> <laughs> if I ever did, in fact. There, there was there was one very minor one that I saw on Twitter. I don't know if you follow Men of Worth on Twitter, who's a First World War account. I don't know the name of the chap who runs it, but he was saying that he let his daughter do a show and tell in his office because she wanted. They were doing a sort of video conference with her classmates, and so she allowed her to take. Um, he allowed her to take her snake in to show it off. And it got freaked out at the sight of the computer and the big screen, and Im- immediately went into this bloke's printer and shat all over the inside of the printer. <laughs> To entice him out, um, the chap's wife had to sit on a frozen mouse and defrost it so they could entice him out of the printer. This is probably one of these things that's not going to happen twice on Corona lockdown. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Okay, uh, right. Uh, Hold on, hold on. You forgot about someone. Oh, and I'm forgetting. Do you know what? It's because you're still faffing around with your dinner. Have you finished eating now? I finished my dinner. My dogs are running around like idiots. Uh, as you can very well hear, uh, apparently it's time to play when I'm recording. So, you know, but yeah, you forgot about me. Yeah, it's you Alina, everybody. Of course, Alina's <laughs> here because Alina's always here. Alina has got the worst argument for the greatest warlord of all time. <laughs> no, I don't. Of the ancient world that I've ever heard. It's literally done no. in four seconds and I can't wait to hear you all laugh at her. <laughs> uh, but she's adamant, much like Clive, she's adamant she's right. So let's because get started. Last week, guys, I was so so serious. This week, I am going to be fun. Okay, right. Alina's got her fun hat on today. Um, so, but we'll get to her later because let's start with our enthusiasts, as ever. Uh, James, you started us off last week, so let's go to Clive today. Clive, who is the greatest warlord of the ancient world? Well, thank you for that, Alex. The answer is actually quite easy, and I was grateful to Lindsay for his definition because that fits extremely well because when you're looking at what the greatest warlord is and what makes it do you judge it by the the amount of territory they seized the battles they won how many people they killed is it the person with the biggest ego the person with the reddest shoes the greatest resources the greatest army inherited from their dad or is it an innovative and effective military commander if it's the latter There's one man from the ancient world that stands head and shoulders above the rest, and that's Xenophon. He was not a king. He did not command an advanced military machine. He was not wealthy. He didn't kill people wantonly. He wasn't a bastard by your definition. (laughs) He captured no territory. He wasn't really even a soldier. And he never assumed a name at least, command. However... I'm glad you said however, because I was wondering why you'd nominated him for a moment there. But go on, <laughs> I let's said go. Name at least, Alex, as yeah. we say, and as we lawyers say, he might not have been de jure a commander, but he was, um, in fact, a commander. He had hugely limited resources, but he conducted an amazing feat of strategy, tactics and logistics. He developed formations and command structures that survived for millennia. He's been described as a genius, and someone described him wrongly, as the greatest military strategist until Alexander. He was in so many ways greater. Although an amateur, he was the first personification of a modern military commander. Not a king, not a prince, not an emperor, but a man focused on the military challenge and how to achieve it. 
and he did achieve his war aims. As I said, he didn't conquer, but what he did was far harder. He managed a fighting retreat and succeeded. Xenophon was an Athenian born in 430 BCE, a friend and disciple of Socrates. He was invited by another chum to pop over and meet Cyrus the Younger, the son of Darius. Now, Cyrus raised an army, and among it were around 12,000 Greek mercenaries, and one of these was Xenophon's chum. It seemed that the mercenaries were rather taken by Cyrus, and despite long periods of non-payment, stayed very loyal, even when he went to war with his brother, the king, Artaxerxes. We know of all of this because Xenophon kindly wrote it all down in his book, Anabasis. Like Julius Caesar, he wrote in the third person. Unlike Caesar, he didn't wear red shoes and wasn't vainglorious. To the contrary, he was often self-critical. He recounts how Cyrus's army of 200,000 faced up to the king's army of, he said, and I think this might be a little bit of exaggeration, 1.1 million. They were kicking four shades of shit out of the larger force when discipline broke among Cyrus's guard and they rushed in pursuit of the enemy, leaving Cyrus exposed and ultimately dead. Despite a military victory, Cyrus's course was lost and the Greeks were left a long way from home and in hostile territory. The king then conned their generals and other officers and chopped their heads off, leaving around 10,000 leaderless men with a walk of 1,000 miles from modern-day Iraq to Greece, all of it through Persian-held territory. Xenophon, without assuming overall command, guided the 10,000 home. It was a fighting retreat through winter over mountains and always in hostile territory. They were mainly heavy infantry. There were no casualty. There were only a handful of Cretan archers. One of Xenophon's first acts was to destroy their baggage train so all of the Greeks could act as combat troops. He then organized the soldiers from Rhodes as slingshot chappies, whatever slingshot chappies are meant to be called. <laughs> Apparently the island of your birth determined what military skills you would have. And he small formed a very small cavalry unit of somewhere between 40 and 100 men. They had no provisions. They had to buy, barter, forage and pillage to survive. They crossed mountains and blizzards. Stragglers were not left behind. Those who collapsed from hunger or cold were fed and warmed. Xenophon led from the front, or rather, he led from the back as he placed himself in command of the rear guard. He endured the suffering of the men. He motivated them. He listened to their grievances, faced with mutiny. He won them round with oratory and persuasion. And then, only when it was demanded by the men, he established a tribunal to try the ringleaders. His military justice was fair and applied to generals as well as hoplites. Is it hoplites or hoplites? Well, I'll say hoplites. <laughs> when riding with his infantry unit, a soldier murmured criticism of his cushioned mounted life. So he jumped off his horse, still dressed in his cavalry gear, and went fighting as an infantryman. At each stage, and in each of dozens, possibly hundreds of engagements over many months, he set effective strategy and tactics. He changed the formation of the march from the traditional battlefront to columns, allowing the army to move more swiftly and evenly. He obtained provisions carefully, using diplomacy where possible to avoid unnecessary action. When the army threatened to elect him as commander, he spoke eloquently and ensured that the Spartan leader was appointed, in name at least, so ensuring the units of the army and also ensuring that his voice could be heard and obeyed without recrimination. And he brought them home. 
Well, he got about 8,000 of the 10,000 home, which wasn't bad considering what they went through over many winter months. When you compare it with, say, Napoleon's retreat from Moscow, it stands in pretty good stead because Napoleon lost most of his men and actually left them behind and dashed off in a cushy fashion to get home quickly. If you look <laughs> at in Kabul, where one man survived, not 8,000, none of those look particularly good in comparison. Even Dunkirk, where Xenophon wasn't sitting there with the resources of one of the world's great economic powers, having to make a 22-mile sea crossing, he had to cover 1,000 miles on foot without any resources at all. He also wrote about it beautifully. When I was a kid, when you did Latin, it didn't ha doesn't happen now. Apparently they do nice stuff, but in those days you only had military histories to translate. And in Latin we did De Caesar's De Bella Gallici. In Greek, we had Xenophon. And I have to say, having read both of those in translation again recently, Xenophon writes a lot more interestingly and a lot more openly than Caesar. Caesar's prose is really rather turgid. <laughs> yeah, We're already one. not fans of Caesar on this programme. Go on, Emma. Oh. Turgid, is he right? Another of his sins. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things also Xenophon does is he sets out verbatim many of his speeches to the army and its generals. And we know that those are almost certainly accurate recordings. Because one of the things that Xenophon was famous for was his verbatim recordings of his conversations with his chum and mentor, Socrates. So he was a man who achieved his goal with limited resources against all odds, using innovative strategy and tactics, who maintained morale and discipline without brutality, whose methods were adopted for centuries by others, who did so without vanity or lust for glory, but just in order to get the job done. Yes, he was pretty bloody cool and stands out for all of those reasons, from all the bigger names of the ancient world. But more than that, if you ever saw the 1979 film, The Warriors, that was based upon Xenophon and his Anabasis. And watch that film and see the troubles and tr trials and tribulations that the gang, the warriors have in that, trying to get from the Bronx to Coney Island. You'll understand what Xenophon put up with and what his success really was. He clearly was the greatest of ancient warlords. Well done, Clive. Wow, we've really put your classical education to use, haven't we? <laughs> it wasn't all for nothing. Do you know what, though? I'm sorry, but you lost me the second you said that he wrote about himself in the third person, because that, for me, is the first indicator <laughs> that someone's a wanker. There, <laughs> <laughs> there was early in the oh. book, there are two first-person first person singular pronouns, but later, when he comes to much more to the fore, he starts talking about Xenophon rather than about I. I suppose it was just to make it easy for the reader to know who he was talking about. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sold. Holmes, got any questions? Yeah, a, a few. Um, first, <laughs> it's, it's quite a relief. It's after Clive's slightly random choice last week, it's, I'm slightly relieved that he's chosen, like, he hasn't chosen the bloke who invented honey or something this week. <laughs> <laughs> week was not random. It was actually mm -hmm. a very valid and proper choice. We can argue about that again if you wish. Well, yeah. <laughs> Clive is <laughs> never going to let go um, of that. You know it. <laughs> I, 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 I read a little bit about him earlier, and then and the retreat that Clive's outlined is very impressive. And then, Clive, on the on the thousand mile retreat, how many casualties were there? They, I think, uh, looking at the numbers that he recounts in his book, they started when they 
originally, before the big battle, and when they were in Cyrus's army, there were about 12,000. When they, after they had fought the battle, after they had had all their officers beheaded by the king, I think they were down to about 10,000. They're always referred to as the 10,000. By the time they get into back to Greece, there were a few more than 8,000. So it's pretty low casualty rates when you consider, I think it was about, it must have been about five or six months fighting the whole way. And then, and then my other slight concern, bearing in mind the definition that Lindsay gave us helpfully at the start, is that he was known as the father of the system of retreat, which isn't the most terrifying. <laughs> but just, just think what he could have done if being asked to go forward. <laughs> he could have added that in brackets afterwards, to be honest, in the third person. But... Okay, that, that's it from me, Johnny. Yeah, I'm. Um, it's certainly. I mean, in terms of a, a retreat, managing a retreat in military terms is 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 a tricky business. So that that's certainly quite impressive. Um, I, I don't know a great deal about Xenophon, but I'm I'm, I'm going to paraphrase the great trigger from Only Fools and Horses, is that you know what did he do after? He was like Gandhi. Did he just make one great film and that was it? And, <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, compared with most of the others, he actually did very well. Off. Well, he did. He had mixed fortunes afterwards. He got back to Greece. He, unfortunately for him, was a bosom buddy of all these Spartans who had been in his gang and ended up fighting with them against the Athenians, which was thought to be a bad move by his fellow Athenians. And he was banished from Athens. But the Spartans put him up in a nice place where he sat down and wrote Anabasis and a couple of other books. More, he was more of a philosopher than a military commander by nature. And it was only when his son was killed while fighting for the Athenians that he was pardoned and allowed back to Athens. And he lived on a long and useful life teaching people about how to do things properly. But, I mean, sure, nearly everyone I read was a, a philosopher in ancient Greece. It's a bit <laughs> like putting an interest in current affairs down on your CV, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, he, was, he was a chum of Socrates and did have long dialogues with Socrates and indeed one of the interesting aspects of this was that Socrates didn't want him to go over to join up with Cyrus and told him to go and consult the oracle so he pops over to the oracle and he asked the oracle not should I go but how best should I go and so when he comes back with the answer from the gods and relates this to Socrates Socrates is well pissed off saying you've asked the wrong question, but even more pissed off because having asked the question he asked, the gods had told him what to do. And therefore, he was duty bound to do what the gods, gods had told him. So it was a fait accompli. I think as a judge, it would be unfair to me to take that verbatim, to be honest. <laughs> Are you looking for the legalities here of chain of evidence? Or? So. There might be yeah, slight issues about admissibility. Oh. Well done, Clive. I feel yeah. once again you've you've Impressive. made an outstanding uh, speech in defence of your choice. Um, I can't help but think Holmes is not taking you entirely seriously. But then Holmes <laughs> doesn't take anything seriously, so don't hold it against him. But let's move on to James because James, I'm sure you've been outside the box again, and that you, I, I will put money on you not having picked a Roman or a Greek, basically, because I know you haven't. So go for it. Who have you picked and why? Okay, this is a bit out of the box. I've picked Darius the First, also known as Darius the Great. 
That's a he good start. More, <laughs> yeah, he was known as Darius the Great more for his administrative and other things. However, he was quite a warlord himself. He wasn't a king to start with. He was the third Persian king of the Achaemenid Empire. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. It's a pain to pronounce. Um, but he basically came to power through effectively a coup. Uh, the primary sources say that someone else had done a coup and he was restoring the rightful family to the throne. And the story goes that seven nobles, including himself, got together to decide, okay, who will take over? And they said, whose horse neighs first at the rising sun? And he seemed to have got his groom to rub his hands on a female horse, so his horse neighed first. Um, before that, he did fight in the Persian army under Cyrus the Great. And he fought in Egypt as a spearman. And then he was later King's Lancer. However, when he came to power, there was revolts across the Persian Empire. It said that he came to power when the Persian Empire was at its height. And that is technically correct. But at the same time, with all the revolts that happened he then had to fight basically to regain nearly all the territory back from, I think it was like Babylon, Madeira. Oh, I've got my notes here, so it's a bit of a... Sorry about this. Yeah, sorry. Persis, Media, Parthia, Assyria, Babylon and Egypt. He I'm not going to gonna hold it against you that you didn't remember that list. Yeah, he, <laughs> it's inscribed on the primary sources that he fought at least 19 battles during those three years and captured nine revolting leaders, and I think most he had executed. And that was only after then he managed to quell the conflicts. After this, he set off to secure the lands of Egypt, which had been conquered before by Cambyses in about five nights. And in 519 BCE, he incorporated a large part of Egypt into his empire and became pharaoh as well. And then in 518 BCE, most people think that Alexander the Great was the first person to conquer e uh, India, sorry, but it was actually Darius. He conquered mainly northern Punjab, as the inscriptions testify, and also the Greek so Herod uh, Herodotus, adds that India was the 20th satrapy of the empire and that also parts of the Indus Valley fell victim to Persian warfare. He also expanded into Europe and he attacked the Scythians as revenge for attacks on uh, Persia. It was the simple military conquest at first. However, after that, when he pushed into the European Scythians, it became more like fighting guerrilla warfare. Uh, however, this did enable Persia to then conquer Macedon, uh, Thrace as well, parts of the Balkans, Eritrea, I think, also fell, the Aegean and Ion Ionia and Aegean Islands. There was also the Ionian Revolt that he helped put down. And although... Technically, they did lose to the Greeks at the Battle of Marathon. That was a general that he delegated to do that. Because this is a, one thing I like to add about warlords is they're not just 
warlords themselves it's who they delegate to take things for them as well which is partly leadership as well and this is something napoleon i don't think learned well he never taught his he never taught his generals and field marshals properly they're all good in their own way but they never had the success he did and it was something napoleon's enemies exploited but that's another argument um, but yeah, before he could retake Greece, though, he did die eventually after putting down another revolt in Egypt, which was a shame because I feel if he had survived and it wasn't left to Xerxes, I think they would have actually conquered Greece in the end. So what you're saying is he put a shift in? Yeah, he <laughs> reigned, well, he, he was about 64 or something when he died and he reigned for, uh, well, looks... Yeah, it looks like at least 30 years from what I can see. Johnny, yeah, you got any right. questions? Um, I think when, in terms of the length of his reign, that sounds quite impressive. I, where does this put him on, on the league table of, of similar characters? Because 30 years sounds like a very long time for that kind of, that kind of era. Ooh, that might be more of a yeah. question for Lindsay or Emma. Comparably, yeah, it be a question for Reigns. Lindsay. Well, as you will hear, I, I'm going to be talking about what I think about as the granddaddy of all warlords, and you'll see that he actually survived for 40 years. Yeah. So, <laughs> take that, Darius the First, I say. <laughs> well, so, so I, I think we, we can safely say Darius the First is, you know, he's a Champions League contender. Yeah. 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 Okay. No, thank you. No, that, that'll do. That'll do. That was well explained, as always. Holmes. Thank you. Just one thing for me. The word revolt was mentioned quite a few times through that <laughs> description. And in my mind, I've sort, of, I've sort of got a warlord type figure who rules through a mixture of respect and fear. And then I'm thinking it through. You just wonder how, if, if people were that fearful and respectful of him, would there have been that many revolts? It's the, the revolts were in the initial years of his reign because effectively he came to power by almost a coup. And by, some of the, by molesting a horse, uh, as you explained. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, the, um, and obviously some of the people under the Persian or Achaemenid Empire at that point thought, well, independence will be better for us. And they basically took their chance. It wasn't necessarily that they were, they didn't think of him as a great leader. They just saw their chance to take it. And I think he crushed them with quite a small army as well. I know there's some sources that say he had 10,000 immortals but besides that other sources say his army was quite small so to defeat at least nine revolts in 19 battles with a small army takes some doing and then how long you know he he got as far as Egypt as you say and uh, the Punjab in India how long did that did his empire hold those lands uh, that is a good question. Um, it's, if I remember rightly, it did start to go to pot, shall we say, <laughs> under his son and under the descendants. Because by the time Alexander the Great attacked Persia and basically conquered Persia, it was quite weak. It was quite fragile. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, when I... When I talk about Alexander, I'm going to put a slightly different spin on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought you might. Yeah, because actually, a lot of the uh, a lot of the institutions of 
Doaz's empire um, continue through the Alexandrian conquest and, uh, you know, the empire that follows Alexander, certainly the, the Seleucid empire that follows Alexander, is more or less still the same Persian empire and yeah, the Persians keep it going, and it takes the Greeks to come in for it all to really start to fall apart. <laughs> yeah. Oh, keep well, um, the powder, try to. Uh, Lindsay's nodding away with you there, Tony, but we'll get to Alexander. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I just... see the point he's making there as well. <laughs> uh, it's what I mean by fragile was it while the government stayed in place, and like you said, uh, the system of governments, governance stayed in place, it was very, it was more. I say political, like there wasn't the strength in the leader or the the strength in the belief of the leader as there was, especially after Darius III did lose to Alexander. There wasn't that strength of belief in Darius III to basically keep his throne. So that's okay. what I mean by fragile. Was Darius I and Alexander the Great, were they around at the same time? No, 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 no. 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 Sorry, da- Darius the Third is the one that lost to Alexander, and he's quite a way down the line. I think it's at least two hundred years after something like that. I mean, I'm sure Lindsay will correct me on my and exact date. Darius the Third couldn't have called himself Darius the Great because Alexander had all that tied up in trademark by that time. Yeah, <laughs> says, says the guy that deals with the yeah. uh, rights management. Um, <laughs> he's already thinking of the pound signs. Okay, um, yeah. before we break after this section and you do your winner so far, I'm, Alina, I'm putting you in this section because you are clearly not an expert on what you're about to talk about, so I don't think it's fair to put you in the expert column. So I'm going to put you in the enthusiast column. So fun, Alina, this week, because you don't have to talk about the Holocaust. Who is the greatest warlord of the ancient world and why? I'm, I'm a little bit unprepared for this. I'm currently like a dog no with a shit. bone on Twitter. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm currently like a dog with a bone on Twitter because somebody has said something wrong and I need to correct them and I need to the right evidence to correct them. Put the phone them. down and make I it I put wrong. the phone down. Right. right. Are you all ready? Because you might as well finish this after I've said this. Okay. I will be the winner. Are you ready? Right. Sun Tzu. Thank you very much. Goodbye. That was the end of the show. Have your argument day. just because he wrote The Art of War? Yeah. Okay. Are there any questions? Yeah, are there any oh, questions? No. no. I, I could argue about this all night, especially as Sun Tzu is considered also potentially mythical and The Art of War potentially... I don't care. <laughs> Not according to Wikipedia, care. James. Johnny, any questions? I, I think I, the biggest... I, I'm... I'm not doubting Sun Tzu's credentials. The big issue I have is with the art of war because you see it being read by middle, middle ranking marketing managers who play paintball on the weekends. <laughs> I, it's just. You're calling me a middle management marketing, <laughs> what, whatever that was. No. Paintballer. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one. That's the one. So come on. I want some questions. Go. Come on. Come on. I'm but ready. But I'm also, ready. He wrote the book and it's sort of more of a management thing, isn't it? How much experience do he actually have? She has no know. idea. She's got Wikipedia <laughs> up in front of her. Oh, I'm ready for this. Come on, okay, guys. Go on, then. Questions. go on, question. What did he do on the field of battle? Yeah, that's, that's my first one. What did he right. actually do? Are you ready? I don't know. Next. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Clive. Is Clive oh, I'm ready. I'm telling you. These are my you, answers. Let's go. Come on, you, one more, one more. I'm ready. Can you tell us like three main principles from the art of war? 
I don't know. <laughs> You've got it on your Kindle. It's following a pattern here, isn't it? It is, yeah. I, I feel... Wait, wait. Go on. So, if, hold if on, you hold want. on, hold on. I'm Wikipediaing this one second. Right. One of them is war. the intelligence one, isn't it, that's still used today, like the idea of, of knowing your enemy... As if he Why can't I find this on Wikipedia? Uh, you I do can't know. I've I got the book right approach. here, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. I've... Emma's like, I've wasted my life. I could have just approached I this could have just been there going, oh, I don't know. Alina, um... <laughs> could, could you God tell me... I'm bothered learning things. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> a waste of time. <laughs> could, you, could, you, could you answer a serious question? And that is, what his chapter on night fighting is quite an interesting okay. one. What relevance does that have to paintballing marketing managers? <laughs> yeah, this, I feel, is a very pertinent question. I don't know. <laughs> right, okay, Alina, bugger off back to Twitter. Uh, guys, <laughs> Thank you. That, so, Johnny, Holmes, you have two serious contenders there. You can't possibly rank Alina above Clive because he will combust after he wrote that speech <laughs> out for Xenophon. And I'm sure do James it, is it. laughing, but James would punch a wall if she beat him. So, guys, who's winning so far? Xenophon or, or Darius? Alina. It's obviously not Alina, because all that chap did was write the first self-help book, to be honest. <laughs> 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 we should put this to Twitter. So he's getting no credit for that. Um, for me, it's not Xenophon, although I, he's the one I did look into more, and he is a very impressive character. And I like a, a lot of what he did and what he stood for. But if we're strictly going back to the definition of you know, what an ancient what the greatest warlord of the ancient world was, I don't think what he did was quite enough. And so on that basis, I'm going to go for Darius the first. Johnny, I don't know if you agree or disagree. No, I'd, I'd go along with that. Um, I, just the more you look at, or the more I look at Darius in terms of what I have in front of me on screen, is, you know, the, there was the introduction of currency, you know, the regulation of trading, building things, you know, it's establishing some kind of, of empire and way of doing things. So he was a marketing manager. Great. <laughs> he probably read The Art of War as well. Can I just say, if there are any marketing managers listening to this podcast, I'm very sorry for all of the disparaging remarks. As someone who was, in fact, a sodding marketing manager myself for a chain of bars, you can all bugger off. Next and also, Johnny, Johnny, he did go paintballing regularly with Socrates, of course. I think... I would have done as well back then. I think that would have been a cool afternoon to hang out on. But, I, can um, I just say Socrates would have been the dullest paintballer in the history of the world? <laughs> to, to, to he would, fair, he wouldn't have moved. He would have sat on a rock yapping about the paintballing. To, to be fair, Alex, the amount of lawyers and solicitors in this bar at the moment, I'm not surprised that marketing managers have been targeted. <laughs> yeah. I think if I was going to go paintballing with any ancient people, it would be the Spartans. Oh, yeah, Alex, Alex, one thing you should bear in mind about Socrates, it was he who said, it's something we use quite often when we're discussing legal tactics. He said, if you're strong on the law, sorry, if you're weak on the facts, argue the law. If you're weak on the law, argue the facts. And, if you're and what about if you're a leaner? No, if you're weak <laughs> on both, abuse the other side. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. On that note, we'll move on to our experts. Okay, so we've all been and got a drink, and Emma has come up with a revelation for us. Emma, <laughs> what is your revelation about the art of war? My revelation is that in my day job, um, when we're not all in a pandemic, is that I'm manager of a bookshop here in Belfast, and the only people who buy them art of war are middle managers and 15-year-old boys. 
Uh, <laughs> I think you none could, of whom as yet have gone on to be warlords. Audibly hear Sun Tzu rolling over in his grave. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is not my target audience. Yeah. <laughs> this is probably not the time to admit that I own two copies of it. <laughs> In the original right. Chinese. It, it, <laughs> no, they're, they're both in English, although one, is, oh. one I did buy in China. Mm. Mm. I the, the 15-year-old boy thing is, is a real revelation in the sense that having, having been a 15-year-old boy some time ago, I used many, many ploys to try and attract members of the opposite sex. And I have <laughs> to say, buying a copy of The Art of War wasn't one of them. Maybe this is where I went wrong. I'm not I think this is the ones who are like, they primarily they buy that and they buy like Nietzsche. Um, and then like they're all very pale and probably like only have friends on the internet. Personally, I'd argue 15 year old boys in your time probably brought the. Um, this is my Star Wars geek coming out, but the Thrawn <laughs> trilogy, because Thrawn was basically Star Wars, his son Zoo. But... Don't start Holmes on Star Wars. He has a Star Wars room. I'll defer on that. I do, but I'm not a fan of Grand Admiral Thrawn or all of those novels, to be honest. Anyway. Oh, what, not even the new canon ones. <laughs> no, no. Even, you know, even when the old ones became non-canon, that was quite, quite a relief for me. <laughs> right, enough. Chris, you may well have to edit this bit out. It's no, I'm leaving it in, and you, can, you two can live with the shame of knowing what that is all about. But from the absolutely ridiculous, let's move on to the sublime and talk to Tony because Tony, you have actually done some work on this. You actually know what you're talking about, and you're going to make a very valid claim. Go. Excellent. Yeah. Well, my uh, my particular choice is Alexander the Great. Loving um, it because, uh, well, for the sheer amount that he conquered and the time in which he did it. I mean, Darius the First, for all that he expands the Persian Empire, an awful lot of it is building upon what has been done by Cyrus the Great previously, and and to a lesser extent, Cambyses. Um, whereas Alexander is starting almost, well, he's starting from a very much smaller basis. Um, he's born in uh, 356 BC. He's born in Macedon. He is um, the son of Philip II of Macedon. Uh, Philip has turned Macedon into it from a minor backwater into the dominant power in Greece um, and bequeathed to Alexander an excellent army, which I think is what probably what Clive was referring to. Um, but Alexander takes it places that uh, Philip had not possibly done. Philip is assassinated in 336. Alexander becomes king. Like Darius, he faces um, revolts on the borders of Macedon and also in Greece from people um, who think that this is their best opportunity to attempt to defy uh, the Macedonian leadership and break free of it. Um, he puts those revolts down with uh, swiftness and brutality. Um, he is then 
elected pretty much on a rubber stamp basis to the leadership of the Greek League of Corinth. Um, and he takes upon himself his father's project of um, attacking the Persian Empire and uh, taking revenge um, yeah, the the reason given is to take revenge for what the Persians had done to the Greeks uh, previously in uh, the invasion of Xerxes of 480. Um, Alexander takes that ambition much, much further than Philip can ever possibly have conceived of. Philip probably did not think of more than just securing the Greek cities of the western coast of the Anatolian uh, Peninsula, the area that is now uh, modern Turkey. Alexander goes much further. Partly he's, he's kind of forced to do so. Um, he realises after he's occupied uh, western Turkey that in fact he can't hold on to the Aegean coastal cities um, as long as uh, the Persians can put a fleet into the Aegean um, and he can't do anything about the Persian fleet with his own fleet because his own fleet is rubbish um, and he therefore decides that the way of dealing with the Persian fleet is to take all its bases off it and he then marches through the rest of Anatolia and then into the Levant, uh, modern Lebanon, Palestine, uh, Israel. He marches into that area and takes all the naval bases of, um, of the Persians. Uh, he then is then invited into Egypt. Um, he then continues his march eastwards into the heartland of the Persian Empire. Um, Partly um, because the Persian king offers to split his empire with him um, and uh, Alexander can't accept that because Alexander cannot accept the Persian king offering him half of the Persian empire because that would still admit that the Persian king has the authority to do that. And the Persian king is the ultimate arbiter of who rules what land. And Alexander will not accept that. So Alexander then marches further east, takes the heartland of the Persian Empire, the cities of Persepolis, Ecbatana, Susa, Babylon. By this point, he's come to the realization that he is actually now the new king of the Achaemenid Empire. He is... You know, a new dynasty has been installed at the top of the Persian Empire and Alexander is the ruler of that. And so he then further campaigns out into the eastern provinces, securing them, um, reconquering um, the Indus Valley, uh, bringing all of that together. And he does this in a period of about ten, nine or ten years. Um, he has many sterling qualities as, uh, as a leader. Um, he is a man who very much leads from the front. Uh, he's always right there in the thick of the battle, 
um, at the at the front of um, assaults on cities or whatever. Um, this makes him terribly popular with his troops, although it does get him very nearly killed on a number of occasions. Um, he's also unusually for a commander in the ancient world. He's very good at sieges. Almost nobody in the ancient world is any good at sieges at all. Um, but Alexander is very good at taking places by storm. Um, he wins every battle that he fights in. Um, he does this. Um, he does this because he pushes his luck and he gambles, um, and he does the unexpected thing. Um, and he does things that really shouldn't work. So his first battle against the Persians, the Battle of the Granicus, uh, when he's facing a Persian force on the other side of the river uh, that's actually up a slight slope, um, he takes his cavalry and charges into the river and up that slope. And really, he ought to have ended up with lots of dead cavalrymen and dead horses. But because it's so unexpected, he he manages to beat the Persians. Um, and yeah, he's, he, he does inherit an extremely good military machine, but he knows what to do with it. And he's innovative in what he does with it. Um, and he creates, and, and he certainly changed the world. Um, Greek culture is spread through um, Asia Minor and Central Asia, and it reaches um, India and it influences um, Buddhist art, and arguably it gets through and influences um, art in chi China. Um, you know, it's been argued recently that uh, the uh, terracotta warriors are influenced by Greek art because before the terracotta warriors, there's no figurative, there's not that sort of figurative statue in China. So where is this coming from? And it's entirely possible it's coming via, um, through, through the Congress of Alexander. Um, it is true that his empire as a whole falls to pieces quite quickly afterwards and the bits that stay together largely stay together because of previous uh, previous uh, state structures that are in there um, but I think he's a nobody in certainly nobody in the ancient Greek or Roman world conquers as much as Alexander does Absolutely. Um, and do you know what? Uh, my family are descended from his armies, so you completely have my vote and I'm not changing my mind at all. I have, I have a question, though. Is there, what is the correlation in the Colin Farrell film between the further east they go, the more eyeliner they apply until it reaches absolutely ludicrous <laughs> proportions on Jared Leto by the time they get to like the Indus Valley and you can't even see his eyeballs anymore? What is that as any basis in fact or is it just a makeup artist? Um, I think um, 
that is an attempt to represent the increasing move towards Oriental and Persian fashions that Alexander is encouraging in his court. Um, and he's doing that from about, at least from the time that he captures Babylon and you know the time at which he realizes, actually, no, I'm not just this bloke who's come from the West to conquer all of this area. I am actually now the king of this area and if I'm going to act as the new great king of Persia, I'm going to have to actually behave towards my Persian subjects in the way that they would expect a great king of Persia to behave. And that does involve, you know, you know all the sources say he increasingly adopts Oriental fashions and Oriental dress. And I think... I, I guess the eyeliner is the way of um, trying to uh, trying to express that in cinematic terms. I think you might be giving them slightly too much credit, but what an answer. <laughs> Holmes, you got any questions? I've got a few and a, a couple of observations. I mean, another one, he was tutored by Aristotle, wasn't he? He was indeed. I, I have to start these sort of fighting type chaps. I don't think they were possibly listening to everything that all these philosophers were telling them. Well, that's 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 fair enough. I mean, uh, yes, they're probably. I mean, he is not necessarily. Uh, you know, I mean, he's the king of Macedon, so he can't necessarily adopt every little thing that Aristotle might suggest. Not that Aristotle is particularly a, an advocate for peace. Um, I mean, I think the thing that does um, the thing that does get into him from Aristotle um, one of the driving things about Alexander I think and part of the reason why he's so keen to keep conquering one of the reasons is he's just got this curiosity about the world around him and he wants to see as much of it as he can. Um, I mean, to be fair, some people just go into railing. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, if you're a student, you can go into railing. If you're a king, your exploration will tend to be military in nature. He's a very impressive character. One of the things that I read, um, you may be able to get into more detail, that he ruled as regent when he was 16, when his father was off campaigning somewhere. And as a 16-year-old, he subdued a revolt and then drove the people who revolted from their territory, which is quite impressive for a 16-year-old. Yeah, I mean... It's because when he was 15, he went and bought... the art of war. war. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean... <laughs> I mean, a Macedonian king would be expected to be um, up and ready and able to do that sort of thing from their early teenage. How, how much, sorry, how much input did Angelina Jolly have in real life? <laughs> like, as in his mum, not the actual Angelina Jolly, because I don't think she's that old. Um, she's certainly an influence. Um he um 
I mean, it's interesting that he does almost immediately he becomes king, try to get a, as far away from him as we possibly can. Um, she and his father were definitely um, very much at daggers drawn. Uh, and she seems to be regularly trying to get Alexander to take Philip to take her side and not Philip's. Um, on the whole, Alexander tends to take Philip's side, although there were rows um, over uh, Philip's uh, later marriage to uh, Cleopatra of Macedon. Um, I mean, it's in a way, it's very difficult to say because we don't we don't have any actual contemporary historical accounts of Alexander. We know lots were written. I we think, know that. I think what I'm trying to get at is, can he? He doesn't have to pass off any credit to anybody else, does he? Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. No, I don't think so. Um, and um, and I think he would, he would probably pass more credit to his father than he would to his mother. Okay. I, I think the other thing, the in, sorry, just one more. What, what's quite weird this week is stuff that we were arguing last week was a bad thing is that things we're arguing this week are quite good things and should be applauded and factored into the final decision. I think the other thing that I read that is he named 20, 20 cities after himself, which seems a little bit excessive. Um, yeah, very I'm, warlordy. I'm not, I'm not going to argue. Warlordy. I'm not going to argue he's not an egomaniac. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I'm actually not going to argue that um, being a warlord is in itself, in any way, shape or form, a good thing. Um, I'm merely arguing that looking at the qualities and the behaviour that one expects from warlords, Alexander is is the best one kicking around. I, I, think, mean, he quite, yeah. I think he quite liked naming things anyway, because he had a horse, didn't he, from, a, from, very, hmm. from when he was a very young 15 or something. That was with him for about 30 is. years. Yeah, and then he ended up naming something after his horse as well. Yeah, he named, named a city after, after his horse. Comes quite okay. close to naming cities after Hephaestion as well. Hmm. Johnny? 
Yeah, it's. I, I mean, it's, that's one of the, the question I asked um, Emma last week about Caesar in, in terms of Alexander is, is probably the best known of ancient warlords to the general public. So if you, you asked 100 people to name name a warlord, you'd probably end up with Alexander the Great. So it seems like he was very, very good at self-aggrandising and, and, and his own PR. Yes, uh, there's, no, there's no doubt about that. I mean, he has... He has an official historian along with him, um, who he does eventually end up killing. But uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that ne- never become a, an official historian. It's a very bad idea. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean he's he's aware of the need to promote himself and publicize himself and he does that through alexandria's he does that through um the issue of portraiture um he does that through the issue of coinage in his reign uh which doesn't actually depict him but does depict the god heracles looking very much like him um, and again, I think this is something that almost certainly comes from Aristotle. That it's, uh, you know, this is probably something that Aristotle taught him. It's uh, is the sort of thing that Aristotle would know about. Um, okay. But yeah, I mean, he's he's not a particularly admirable character. I mean, he in his later years he becomes increasingly paranoid. Um, and increasingly megalomaniac and um, part of the reason that the kingdoms that follow him fall apart a bit is most of his key generals and his key figures that are around him at the beginning of his reign by the end of his reign he's killed them all off uh, mm. Yeah, they fall fallen foul of him, or for one reason or another, and they're dead. Right. Okay. Oh, interesting. Thank you. Okay, let's move on. Uh, I'm going to do Emma next because she went last last week. Uh, so Emma, right? We're now moving on to the Romans because obviously we can't have an okay. ancient warlord debate without debating some very warlike Romans. Uh, I'm guessing um, you've taken time out from writing your new book about Julius Caesar this week <laughs> <laughs> to, to do this. Your mom, yeah. yeah, in tribute to my mum, who now hates his guts because of you. Uh, but <laughs> I suspect, although he qualifies for a warlord type thing, one, you wouldn't want to give him an award for that anyway because you don't like him, and two, you've got someone better. <laughs> I have got someone better, um, okay. or at least someone else. Um, and I have chosen Trajan. Um, the Emperor Trajan. Um, my reasons for choosing him are that he is incredibly successful at doing something that the Romans could never otherwise do, um, but in true warlord style, does it for absolutely no reason, and <laughs> then immediately it's just completely unsustainable. So uh, all of the, a lot of what other people are choosing are people who are very successful, and then their empires stick around which is good, but a true warlord, to my mind, should just kind of smash and grab and then everything should immediately fall apart. Um, 
Trajan is a, a soldier who becomes an emperor through a somewhat dubious um, turn of events where he gets adopted by a very old man um, and becomes one of the kind of good emperors. And everyone remembers him as the Optimus Princeps, the best of emperors. Um, and the book, like the main book about him, literally says Trajan, the litmus test of imperial excellence on the back, which is quite good. Um no, sorry, what? this is a really bad question, but is that where the name Optimus Prime came from? <laughs> uh, I'm going to say yes, because I can't prove that it didn't. So. Excellent. <laughs> um, um, he, uh, he basically gets adopted in to be emperor, um, and his previous career is just very good at soldiering. Um, and he, that seems to be the main thing that he loves doing. So he immediately, as soon as he becomes emperor, just starts going off and trying to beat up people. He beats up the Dacians, who are the Romanians, who've been basically just being quite happy being next to the Romans for a very long time um, and haven't really been too much of a bother. But Trajan just doesn't like the fact that there are people next to the Romans who are not part of the Romans, essentially. Um, So he beats them up and then builds himself a massive 115-foot-high column for no really good reason um but just to show off how many people he killed um and then he does the thing that makes him a true warlord which is that he invades parthia um and is the only roman to be actually successful at invading parthia the parthian empire is like the only real group or real empire that threatens the Romans after they destroy Carthage. Um, And then they are constantly, whenever someone is getting too big for their boots or is having a very bad idea um, in the Romans or their power has gone to their head, it usually um, manifests in them trying to invade Parthia. It is like the sign that someone's gone a bit mad. Crassus tries to invade and gets his head chopped off and then thrown into a... um, allegedly anyway thrown into a theater um and then antony tries to invade and gets sent off and then people are constantly trying to invade armenia and just trying to needle the parthians because it just annoys them that they're there and the romans hate looking at stuff and not owning it basically (laughs) um but trajan is the only one who goes in and he very cleverly um antagonizes the parthians over armenia armenia is this spot that um kind of crosses over the boundary between the Parthian Empire, which is um, an Iranian empire that comes out of the Seleucid Empire, um, and the Roman Empire kind of ends at Armenia, and they're constantly niggling each other over Armenia. So he goes and immediately pisses them off, and then, in a very clever pincer attack style, enters from two separate directions at the same time and absolutely rampages over... um, the Parthian Empire. He goes all the way down through, um, he crosses from like what is now the kind of Turkish Syrian border and then goes into Iraq and then powers his way down through Mesopotamia um, and does terrible things to a great many cities, besieges them, gives himself heat stroke because he loves watching sieges so much that he enjoys just hanging around watching them besiege cities. Um, So he stands outside his tent too long and gives himself heat stroke. So uh, warlordy behavior, if you ask me. Um, Captures like Babylon, which is like this very ancient city, gets all the way down to the Persian Gulf, which is a very, very long way for the Romans um, and expands the empire technically. Basically, he just kind of rolls over it. This is a period of about three years where he just kind of rolls over and goes, you're a Roman colony now. You're a Roman colony now. You're a Roman colony now. Um, 
and then just keeps barreling through, then in classic warlord style gets ill and dies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> therefore, unable to really install any kind of um, useful infrastructure in any of these places. He is sensible enough not to go into the um, like Iranian plains where he would get destroyed, um, but he manages to capture loads of it, declare that it's Roman, immediately die with all the glory, and then his successor, Hadrian, has to roll back and say, oh God, we can't actually keep any of this. Sorry, guys, bye. Um, and remove himself from almost all of it. Therefore, he is, his entire career, apart from building some stuff in Rome, um, is basically military. He rolls over a place that no other Roman could successfully get into. Others get in there afterwards, but nobody could get in there before him um, and claims it all for the Romans and then never has to see himself fail because he just dies at the height of his power. And he increases the Roman Empire to its like widest stance for approximately four and a half hours. Um, but <laughs> for that four and a half hours, it was about five million kilometers square. And that's a, not bad for a warlord. Not bad at all. Uh, Johnny and <laughs> um, was it the extent he obviously he it sounds like he took the Roman Empire to to the greatest territorial extent it was at any point um it seems that it was just all military, military conquest there it doesn't sound like there was a, an ambition there to, to kind of establish things build stuff work around trade currencies and all the rest of it is that the there case wasn't or? really the time um it literally is um 113 i think he goes in and he dies in 117 um ad oh, wow. so okay. there's very little time and most of that is spent um, with 10 legions like marching across and fighting people they're not very happy to see him because um, mm. they've been comfortably parthian for a very long time um and so there's quite a lot of revolts and things against him so he doesn't have a huge amount of time to be setting up anything that one could consider infrastructure now and that wouldn't okay. be his greatest strength <laughs> and in terms of um I, I, I guess in terms of your legacy conquering a lot of a lot of land and sort of holds you in sort of quite quite good stead with the population but is there was there a sort of degree of revising his legacy afterwards or was he just sort of regarded as this great conquering hero who died no everyone to adores him um, oh, he okay. does <laughs> he does also so he conquered Dacia and then Dacia became Romania which is like because they kind of really took to being Roman um which is where that comes from and then he also he did quite a lot of building work in Rome um he built Trajan's um, I don't know if you've been to Rome but he built um the forum which is beautiful and he did quite a lot of building there and he built this massive great column which is pointless but everyone liked it um and he gave everybody this thing called Alimenta which is a kind of doll um uh for the poor so everybody thinks he's brilliant right okay he also wrote loads of well-boring letters to Pliny. <laughs> <laughs> he has. He's a man who didn't seem to ever sleep um, and is very intimately involved in lots of things. But <laughs> was, was he big on self-publicity as well? He's quite big on self-publicity. He names everything after himself. He names a city after himself as well. Um, okay. It's a, which is classic warlord behaviour. Not 16, to be fair, but he didn't start when he was that young. Okay. Go on, thank you. Holmes? I was going to ask how vain he was, but you've just answered that in the last, in the last <laughs> question. would actually you... argue not vain enough, because one of the other things that's kind of classic about Trajan is that he has very, very bad hair. Um, he has a classic 
bowl cut. It looks like his mum popped a bowl on his head and cut around it. Um, so if anything, he could have stood with some more vanity. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's it's where the anger to be a war. It is military hair. <laughs> it fits perfectly underneath the helmet, the cassis, the galea. And uh, you wouldn't want long hair with, uh, with low male. No, or you wouldn't want kind of coiffed hair. You need to put a, but it is a classic bowl haircut. Um, thus demonstrating, if anything, his warlordiness, thinking about his helmet above everything else. <laughs> and then how, how, did, how did he die? Uh, he got um, some kind of illness um, and died um, in the East, which is a classic way for someone to go. There were rumours that Hadrian killed him um, because um, people liked Hadrian significantly less than they liked Trajan. <laughs> I thought it was going to be something slightly more flamboyant than that, because I read, if we go brief, quickly back to Alexander the Great, Tony, I read that one of the stories about him dying was after he downed a large bowl of unmixed wine in honour of Hercules. <laughs> um, Who hasn't? Yeah, there were various different, <laughs> various different stories about that. There's all sorts of people that um, acute, suggest that he might have been poisoned or something. Um, I mean, the fact is that for 10 years, Alexander has been basically treating his body very, very badly. Um, not only has he been at the front of every battle and therefore getting wounded left, right and centre, uh, but he's also been celebrating every battle um, and every other excuse on uh, Macedonian levels and Macedonian levels in those days involve an enormous amount of drinking. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, I can quite imagine that he would drink an enormous toast and that, um, you know, at some point his body just says, right, well, that's it. I've done enough. Not doing we, any we don't need to I've, I've seen Johnny on a number of occasions have a large gin and tonic in honour of Hercules. I've also yeah. seen him fall off a picnic table um, <laughs> in the act of reaching for a can of beer as well. To be fair, going back to Emma's mention of the bowl cut, that's probably going to make a comeback at the moment. So it's either <laughs> going to please a lot of people or it's going to piss another load of people off. It's going to yeah, be very fashionable in late All mothers listening to this podcast will be like, come on, you can look just like Trajan. He was a great <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, I mean, it's a very sort of traditional Roman haircut, really. And it's, it's his way of saying that uh, he represents with traditional Roman values. It definitely says something about him. I'll give you that. Um, <laughs> let's move on to our penultimate candidate, because I have one I'm going to chuck in as well. Uh, Lindsay, you've waited all this time to make your case. Uh, and Lindsay loves this guy so much that he wrote a book about him. So, Lindsay, who is your greatest warlord of the ancient world? Well, his full name is Imperator Kaiser Divifilius Augustus. We all know him as Caesar Augustus. And Why? Right. Okay. So here's, here's what I'm going to say. So we started with a definition which said a military commander, especially an aggressive regional commander with individual autonomy. What does one of those look like? Go to the Vatican, look for the Prima Porter Augustus. That is what a warlord looks like. It's a guy in, in a muscle cuirass with an arm outraised, uh, exhorting the troops to listen to what he's got to say. 
think uh, I saw a, one of them in Vegas as well. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> you absolutely did. And often, often if you go there, you'll find it sometimes has a hockey stick because the local uh, Las Vegas team is actually sponsored by the Caesars Palace Hotel. Uh, and uh, that's exactly why. And in fact, it's quite funny. They, they decorate that, that uh, Prima Porta step, but you're absolutely right. Um, so I want you to imagine that that is what uh, a warlord looks like. I want to take you also back to when did all this start? Well, remember how he got where he got? It was because Julius Caesar picked him to be his legal heir. So uh, this young man who was born on the 23rd of September, 63 BC, lives through tumultuous times, but watches the rise of his great uncle. And on the Ides of March of 44 BC, actually what, or hears, he actually gets a letter. He's actually in, uh, in, in a little town, actually a seaside town um, called Apollonia in uh, what is now called Albania. He receives a letter and then very quickly responds to what he then sees as being uh, a, a real threat to the to the, the Roman society. There is a document called the Res Gestae, which is his, if you like, his attempt at writing his story before the rest of the historians got uh, got their take on. And one of the first lines it says is, "At the age of nineteen, on my own initiative and at my own expense, I raised an army by means of which I restored liberty to the Republic, which had been oppressed by the tyranny of a faction." That, my friends, is what a, uh, what a warlord does. He actually raises an army and he gets the job done. Uh, it's very interesting to me that, in fact, he uh, broke a lot of the, con uh, the conventions of the time. Uh, imperator, which we now translate as emperor, and it comes, comes with a lot of baggage these days. We think of sort of uh, potentates with uh, soft cushions and, and, and sort of rich uh, fabrics and so on. Imperator really meant commander. And what's really telling about this man and his ambitions is that in the 30s uh, BC, when he was actually an active campaign, he decided to take the name Imperator, which actually was, was a, a title that victorious soldiers would shout after a battle and they would acclaim uh, their commander with that title. He took that as his first name. He actually had the audacity to do that. I think that's what warlords do. So up to that point, everybody would put the Imperator at the end of their name. No, he stole it, put it right at the front. One thing he inherited was the name, of course, of Julius Caesar. That was one of the great uh, pluses of being uh, his legal heir. And as my good friend Carl Galinsky, Galinsky formerly at the uh, you know, University of Texas at Austin made the point, is that when Augustus, when he was in those formative years, had the chance to actually deify uh, the uh, deceased great dictator, what it meant was that he could then adopt the title D.V. Felius, which meant son of a god. And as he points out, it's very hard to argue with the son of a god. Uh, so I want you to think of that. So you've got a man who's positioning himself. We've heard that uh, optics being important. This man, I think, is, is probably the granddaddy of propaganda in this regard. One of the things I want to point out is that uh, in the guise of military commander, what he understood was he had his limitations. We've heard about Alexander doing crazy things. And by the way, there's a great book called Alexander the Great Failure, uh, The Collapse of the Macedonian Empire by John Granger. I reckon you will read that. But that, you know, where he saw failure, what Augustus did, was to learn those lessons. He had seen what Julius Caesar did, uh, and as you know, he actually was, was murdered by some conspirators. What, in fact, our man Augustus learned was to actually manage perceptions and to manage limitations of things. When he knew he couldn't for, find uh, the advantage to win a battle, uh, he would find deputies to actually undertake that for him. So we see after about 25 BC, he takes less and less of a frontline role, and actually those go to people he's picked. Agrippa, Statilius Taurus, and his stepsons, uh, Nero Claudius Drusus, and of course the notorious Tiberius. What, what I wanted to say there was that uh, he, he understood that there's a calculus that you have to play as a military commander. You do not necessarily need to lead from the front, but you have to have good men who can. 
and then you actually take credit for their achievements. So he built this great uh, political and military machine which enabled him to do that. Um, what it meant was that in, in the run-up to his position where he was declared Augustus by the Senate in 27 BC, he had defeated the arch, uh, the, the, should we say, the, um, the, the villainess in a lot of this, the Cleopatra of Egypt, who sided with uh, Mark Antony and uh, threatened to actually break the empire into two. Uh, and what he did by actually uh, winning a victory over her actually brought in the whole of Egypt into the Roman uh, sphere of influence. And, and this is something that's important to understand about what Augustus means. When he talks about peace, it's not like we understand it. There's, there's a very telling point in his uh, Res Gestae, which is the expression, Parta Victoris Pax, peace won from victories. You have to beat your opponent on the battlefield and then you can declare peace. Uh, he knew that better than anybody. And he chose some of the best people in the business to go do that for him. He was actually acclaimed by his troops no less than 21 times. It was an extraordinary thing. Uh, that he did that. The empire doubled in size under him. He took in, for example, uh, parts of what we now consider to be Germany. Uh, there were parts of uh, Anatolia um, and also uh, the Alps area. And in fact, if I uh, read a, get a little bit here from, from his res guest, he says, I extended the boundaries of all the provinces which were bounded by races not yet subject to our empire. So the point was, he's, he's very good at uh, showing that he's the man who's in charge of all of this. To do that, he had the army, because you have to have an army. What was really clever about what he did was he had basically all of the army under his command. So there was no possibility for anybody actually raising one in opposition to him because he had all the power behind him. What that means is, is that he had not only the legal authority, which is the word imperium in, in Latin, but he also had this thing called auctoritas, which we now translate as authority, but means influence. Because of all this accumulation of the name of Caesar and all the great deeds he'd done and all the various military victories and so on, he could, he could just by showing up in the room get things done. Uh, he established a system which I would argue uh, endured for about 200 years. He died uh, a couple of weeks before his 76th birthday. He'd ruled for something like 40 years. Um, so I think it's really interesting that when, when you look at all these other people that we, we've talked about today, Trajan, a great man, and it's very telling that when, when Romans actually reflected on who they thought were the great leaders of their time in the 3rd and 4th century, they would say, be luckier than Augustus and better than Trajan. So they thought of those two people. The, the point I want to make is Trajan could not have done what he did without Augustus actually having set the ground. <laughs> tellingly, very tellingly, is the fact that um, Augustus had actually tried to go to Dacia and learned very quickly it was a hard egg to crack and therefore you don't do it. He also understood from all the failed initiatives and operations out to the Parthians, it was better to actually forge a treaty with them. And in fact, they did that and it endured for the entirety of his reign. So in fact, what they, what they understood was the characters didn't have to be, the Jews have to go big, you have to find a, a stasis. And there's this wonderful story about where he has the calculus of the, the golden fish hook, which means that you only go to war when you know that you can win. And if the chances that if you imagine a, a, a fisherman in a boat has a golden fish hook that you might lose in desperation trying to catch a fish, that is not a good trade-off. So I think uh, that, that the man that we call Caesar Augustus really does deserve the title of the warlord of the ancient world. Thank you. Well done. Holmes. Yeah, that was a really Im Im impressive summary. The, 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 my immediate take from it was that he seems to be possibly slightly more clever calculating and strategic perhaps than the other than some of the other candidates that we've heard about tonight. 
That's a very interesting point. But, but I think see, we have the benefit of, of, of all those years in between. We know how things turned out. When he was 19, he had no idea what was going to happen. And, and what, what, what I think is very telling, when you try to get into the mindset of somebody at that moment in time and work out what choices they had to make, um, it's very clear sometimes it's, it, they're feeling their way through. Uh, we can now sort of suggest, oh, we had a grand strategy for the Roman Empire. It's not at all clear when you look at any particular times that that was the case. It, it sounds like, for example, a lot of what he did militarily was actually reactive. So, for example, he went off to northern Spain to complete conquest, which had started 200 years before, actually. Uh, he didn't have that as a big thing to go just conquer Spain, but he just wanted to finish the job. That the, uh, em the expeditions into Germany were actually caused because there were German invasions coming, and he was quite frankly pissed off about this. Um, so he actually then decided, okay, we're going to deal with this the obvious way, which is we're just going to pacify the place. Um, Roman pacification is, is quite brutal, as I'm sure you've probably heard in, in, in other discussions. But um, it, I, I, I would make the he, he may come over as being very clever, and he would be no doubt quite thrilled to think that we now believe that to be the case, because managing his image, and it's very telling that that image of the Prima Porta statue uh, with that very youthful sort of forever 30-something look about him, um, where he appears the same way on coins. They never change. And I think it's really interesting that, um, that, that we, we know of his reputation because it was very carefully cultivated. I think there was an awful lot more of, uh, God, we've got to make a decision. What are we going to do? Guys, give me your advice uh, at the time. But would it be fair to say that some of the other candidates, they led people and... Um, made conquests almost through sheer will of personality. Uh, possible. I mean, you, you, could, you can argue, for example, Julius Caesar uh, went, went to Gaul on his uh, genocidal mission to conquer the people there. Um, you know, that, that, was, that was him deciding that he had to raise his political profile and he was able to do that through blood and gore. Um, but, but you can argue he wasn't actually terribly good at the pacification piece. In fact, that's where Augustus was very good. Um, and, and, and you look at Alexander the Great, who it was was a hero figure to the Romans. Let's not, let's not underestimate that. And Augustus had that distinct honour of actually going to see the embalmed in honey, by the way, mellified body of uh, Alexander. And I, the story I understand from, I think it's from Nicolaus, who wrote about this, was that he actually broke the nose off of Alexander when he looked at it, so that's kind of embarrassing. Um, but everybody paid a debt of gratitude for, the, for this very heroic uh, figure and tried to emulate him. I think where, where Augustus is different is because I think he had smarts um, and, and he, he probably was more thoughtful. He, he didn't take risks just because it's a great thing to do. I think he was actually very conservative. When he played, he played to win. He massed forces. He chose the best people. He reformed the army so it became professionalized in a way that people before they hadn't done. Um, and he would lead from the front. In fact, he was injured uh, in different ways with uh, gashes to his leg and so on um, in, in Lyricum. And I think he just realized that, uh, yeah, there's a point where someone with a force of personality like Caesar probably could do that. And arguably, I think the same as Trajan and to some extent Hadrian. But he, he, I think he had a, a, a bigger idea, which was to, uh, to, to learn the lessons what Caesar had done and got killed for it was something he was very smart not to do. Johnny? Um, I, he sounds a very impressive chap, actually, and um, well done for putting him um, his case across so well. Um, there's, it's, it strikes me that having sort of talked about warlords per se this evening, that there is a, there's a real balance in terms of you need to have the military power and strength and the ability to, to conquer areas. But there also seems to be the, 
a balance where you're not overstretching yourself and being politically astute and hanging on to to what you have if you want sort of a great legacy which Augustus seems to have done um I'm just I, I'm again just sort of reading sort of tidbits off the internet um apparently his famous last words were have I played the part well or applaud as I exit which sort of strikes me as you know politics being show business for ugly people as the, <laughs> the expression goes that he he played this game incredibly well well, let's, let's imagine he, he was, he was what, 70, uh, 77 or 76 at that point. He'd been around a long time. And what's really interesting, when I, when I did the research for my book, Augustus at War, and I divided it up into his, um, his periods of, so, so you'd have to basically renew his powers every five or 10 years. It was, it was uh, something that they, they, they did. It was called the Lustrum. And uh, you can tell through the writings of Cassius Dye that by about the second or third time that they renewed, he's getting weary of it. Um, and I don't know whether that's because Cassius Dow is, is, is writing through a prism, again, of other historians who, of course, give it their own particular gloss. But, but you form this, this picture of the real Augustus. You know, it, it's a weary game when everybody keeps coming to you and saying, we need your advice on what you're going to do. Um, and, and he'd outlived all his friends. I mean, it, 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 in a sense, it's actually ultimately quite a sad story because um, he, he lost his greatest friend, which was Marcus Agrippa, in 12 uh, when he was in his 50s. Um, T- Tiberius was, was a guy that he picked as his uh, successor and had amassed all these uh, political uh, powers, so it would be a seamless transition. But he was a sort of slightly boring man, and, and not, not, you could have a great deal of fun with. Uh, and everybody else that, that he picked, um, like Caius Lucas, his, his adopted sons, ironically, of, of Marcus Agrippa, uh, they all died. Um, so, so everywhere, there are lots of uh, failed decisions that, that happen here. And, and, and uh, I can imagine he would maybe have said that. I, I think probably closer to the truth is what, probably what he uh, is reputed to have told uh, Tiberius, which is effectively, don't fuck it up. Um, I, I, I need you to think the way it is. I have tried everything. I have tried the conquest. I have done all this stuff. Don't mess it up. Um, so it, 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 it's it's the triumph, I think, of a human spirit, um, and, and the fact he, he we say reigned. It's not. I don't think the way that he would see it uh, as reigning uh, so much. But forty years is an extraordinary achievement, and actually dying supposedly a natural death is, given that he's a Roman leader, even more exceptional. When did he die? He actually died in AD fourteen on the nineteenth uh, of August. So please, on the nineteenth of August, raise a raise a glass and celebrate the name because he's the divine Augustus. Actually, he was deified. Oh, and also this honey thing. How did they keep the insects out of the corpse if they embalmed him in honey? Oh crikey! Um, <laughs> Alexander the Great. Is this um, not all... a complete mess? Well, I mean, I think if we've got this, and I'm probably Emma, probably I think you might have read about this somewhere. Um, it, my understanding, it was in some sort of translucent uh, natural mineral material, so you could actually see this sort of hazy image of him inside. So it's presumably a suspended animation or something. I don't know. Um, Mellification. Don't know much a great a deal about it, but it must have had a lid on. I would imagine. <laughs> Still reckon ants, man. That's going to be a magnet. Well, you know, it's very interesting. Going back to Alexander the Great, I mean, the one thing that was very important was who had the body of the great man. And uh, there were all sorts of squabbles. And I think Ptolemy was the victor and dragged it all the way back to, uh, to Alexandria, where it was. Um, Julius Caesar went to see it and Augustus went to see it. I mean, you know, that, that, they were inspired by this, this, this figure. I mean, they wanted to be able to do their uh, touching other hands. And unfortunately, it went a bit far in the case of Augustus. 
<laughs> Augustus breaking off his nose is my favourite story about yeah. Augustus. Yeah. Yeah. I just think of the awkwardness of that moment where his nose just drops. Like Alexander what the Great. What would you do with it afterwards? Try and stick. And he's it not that off. old when he does it either. Like <laughs> no, I, I think it also it, it, it points to something that there's a certain amount of um, well, first of all, the fact that they probably remove the lid and say, "My lord, you, you know, you, you have." Yeah. How he thinks he's entitled you to put his hand it. in there or something. <laughs> it, it, it sounds very arrogant. Why was he even touching the nose? Like, Can well, you imagine if you were one of the people guarding it, you'd be thinking, what is he doing? <laughs> well, <laughs> Can't yes, tell but, him no. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's one of the, the great things about the business, the, the sense that there's not really any boundaries that he's not really ultimately prepared to, to cross over. But um, it, uh, it, it, it is... Just fascinating thing that a 19 year old, I mean, can you imagine someone 19 um, decides that he's going to challenge this bunch of people who have killed Julius Caesar? But I will just say, though, that you said he wrote that, that he raised an army and he did this. I mean, that, that's not that far off from someone in Croydon who took part in the riots deciding to write that up in a similar fashion. <laughs> See, this, but the thing they get is, to be a god then. Well, yeah. he, well what's very interesting is he has, he's not abashed. I mean, he writes it in the first person. I extended the boundaries. Uh, Julius Caesar, I think, for political reasons, wrote in the third person. And, of course, they were released, as, as I understand it, like sort of war missives and they went back and people were oh, you know, like, uh, this this thing that uh, Augustus wrote was intended to go outside his tomb and in fact it's, it's been or it being refurbished it's the mausoleum of Augustus near the Arapakis and it's worth visiting um, and there were these great big obelisks and the idea was that this this story that he wrote in, in, in several chapters uh, is actually attached in bronze. We know of it because it was carved on temple walls in, in uh, Turkey and it survived in various fragments elsewhere. But, but the point is he understood the value of actually writing his version of the story before anybody else would. And, and, and just to throw this in, by the way, that the fact that uh, Augustus um, also censored the materials and, and the writings of Julius Caesar, I think people don't often talk about. Uh, so Julius Caesar wrote comedies and sayings of and all sorts of stuff that no doubt we'd, we'd have a good old chuckle at. When Augustus squashed all those things gradually because what he was effectively doing is, I am the grand nephew of this man. And, and he, he was the great military leader. And so therefore am I. Oh, no, by the way, I'm also the son of God. <laughs> Let's not Alex, start got, on Julius Caesar again. Alex, I've got one more little question, if that's all right. Go for and it. In my lack of knowledge around most things Roman, Lindsay, what would, if we were to compare Caesar Augustus with Trajan, in terms of territory conquered or conquered, oh yeah, which one took the most? Um, oh, that's it. Well, you've got to remember that uh, AD 30 BC, I'm sorry, uh, I think it's the 1st of August, uh, Alexandria falls to Augustus and therefore all of Egypt, which is a massive area. Uh, you know, there's certainly I would think that that would, in terms of territory, uh, rival Parthia, those kinds of areas. Yeah. Um, in terms of what they get kept, I would have to say that Augustus wins that argument. Um, yeah. My oh, argument yeah. would be against Augustus would be that he is not much of a general. He lets Agrippa do all that stuff. Uh, but I think, done. but that's it. I see. But here's the thing, though. I, I, <laughs> no. Oh, she's thrown The thesis of my book was, was okay. basically this. You, you have to be two things. You have to be a leader, which means having a vision, but you also have to be a manager of war. And, He's a very think, good manager. Yes, but it's, it's, it's the fact he has two sides of that particular coin, I think. Oh, is what but if he's the manager, is he the warlord? Oh, well, see, I don't, admittedly, yeah. arguing for Lindsay's case, I, or Gripper wouldn't be doing anything if it wasn't for Augustus. He'd be a very good, like, he's a middle manager. 
Um, he'd be paintball. He'd be doing paintball. Doing yeah, paintball. he'd be doing paintball, <laughs> and he'd be very, very good at it. But yeah. he'd not be. He wouldn't be fighting like world-changing battles without. Yeah. Uh, but I, but I, I also wrote fight. about Marcus Agrippa, who actually is privately, I think, is my hero because of his modesty, and he's the great builder. He does all these great things. That the pact that he seems to have cut with with Augustus is that he would always be second, and he would never given the opportunity take the power. And, and and this is why I didn't, by the way, pick Marcus Agrippa because he would he would have been dreadfully upset. If he had been advanced as being the greatest warlord in the interview, because that would have been, been the abject failure. That was not what he was about. But Augustus would have sucked it all up. Yep. I commend Augustus to the house. <laughs> okay, right. Excellent. As ever, I'm going to go last, um, and it's going to be a complete anti climax. Johnny, I think you've <laughs> missed the mark. You've completely missed the mark, right? You're going through all this. Did they leave a legacy? Did, bollocks to it we're talking about warlords we're talking about who destroyed the most who killed the most people and who the biggest nutcase was i think <laughs> that to be a true lunatic ancient warlord you get more credit for going at it when you literally have no chance of winning <laughs> so i give you boudica slash bodicea or just plain budug to the welsh ignore the victorians <laughs> and the renaissance or the quite pleasant descriptions of her and picture if you will Kathy Burke or Roseanne Barr. This is how I like to think of her. So she was Queen of the Iceni, which is basically Queen of Norfolk, sort of, who in round about AD 60 just decided she'd had enough of the Romans. So when her husband died, the naughty scamps annexed her kingdom instead of sharing it with her daughters. They flogged her, raped her daughters. So she banded together her brethren, some nearby other fighty people and some others, and kicked off, laying waste to Colchester and turned towards London, which at the time was about 20 years old in the guise of Londinium and was a nice little trading point. Um, at this point, Suetonius ran away um, like a sissy bitch and she burnt it and slaughtered anyone in her path. If you dig down through the strata in the city of London, apparently you come to a red layer that was caused by her antics. Uh, she's said to have wiped out 70 to 80,000 people, indiscriminate Britons and Romans, just anyone who was in her way on the way down the country until Suetonius finally got his shit together and defeated her. Until this point, Nero had so had enough of it that he was considering withdrawing from Britain altogether. Boudicca then kills herself or just dies depending on who you believe little known tidbit someone later claimed she was buried in between platforms nine and ten at king's cross which means that the station and indeed trains are a lot older than i thought they were and <laughs> that she is assigned to be trampled on by successive generations of brats on their way to hogwarts but for being the, the little person that dared to stand up to all these spoiled commanders and their vast the vast armies that you lot have mentioned i think she deserves to win for being insane. <laughs> I'm done. Alex she has a statue on the River Thames too. She does yeah. at Westminster Bridge. Yes. Doesn't look like Kathy Burke though. In my head, I like to picture her as this rotund middle-aged woman off a council estate. I don't know why, but that's how I like to picture her in my head. I like that load. In um, the Horrible Histories film that just came out, she's like about... 22 and extremely beautiful and also sings a lot of songs it's actually very enjoyable and um oh God, no it was terrible i had to switch it off halfway through I like, oh, I can't <laughs> so, deal with this. apparently she was quite tall and had long hair down to her waist but i still like to think that she was a beast 
I want her to just be. That's a trope, though, is it? You've got to remember that is a trope. It's a trope yeah. from Dio. Who, yes, exactly. It was reading Dio on Britain Today, and he doesn't know a lot. He thinks we all live in swamps up to our neck, hundred percent. Well, he probably went to Freud. Agriculture was so. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's add people to the list of people that are offended by this show. People from Croydon, Johnny, what borough do you live in? <laughs> I'm not far off. If you venture towards West Croydon Station, swamps isn't far off. Um, yeah, so. I, I, Go on. To, to be to be entirely honest, I, it, fall, it falls down right at the very start. I, I, big, I, you know, a big build-up and all this. I am queen of Norfolk. A bit of Norfolk. A bit, a bit of, of Norfolk. Norfolk. <laughs> I, it's, it's just it's 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 like Alan Partridge having you know having North Norfolk digital. It's just not no, terribly for me, impressive. That, that, for me, that just reaffirms her insanity. It was queen of a bit of Norfolk, and she decided to whoop the Romans. Alex, am I, didn't she fight topless? If it will make you vote for her, yes, she did. <laughs> <laughs> and she was 22 and stunning. Uh, if she was 22, how come she had daughters who were old enough to... Be raped. Yes, Shut up, Clive. Stop being sensible. <laughs> I mean, this is a whole question about... Being Stop being a solicitor. Right? No, go on, Emma, please. Sensible Ooh. comment. There's, a, I mean, there's a whole question mark over Boudicca, full stop. Like, was that her name? Did she really exist? Uh, <laughs> everything we know about her comes from like two sources, which neither of which know much or indeed anything about Britain. Um, and I've made an argument in the past that Tacitus is telling um, of her on Greg Jenner's podcast, actually talking about horrible histories, um, is basically a retelling of the Lucretia myth in order to get a dig in at Nero. Um, but um, you're not coming then, on again <laughs> <laughs> but the story they tells of a woman who's like uh no and then goes around and then she like cuts off the breasts of random women and sews them to their mouths and um dio i think now that's a warlord she to be she proud is, like, of terrifying um so, alex how long was her campaign if she existed <laughs> um, I don't know. Let me just ask Wikipedia. I got it up. That's slight, slightly. Yeah. Hold on a second. You slightly just more Wikipedia. Just yeah, but I made a coherent argument, <laughs> and you didn't. I don't uh, care. I was funny. Your to answer to everything was I don't know. That's because I couldn't be bothered to actually read, and I just you know winged it. When did her husband no. die? All, all, all the sources suggest oh, Pras- that... Prasagus, um, you mean? Oh, God, he died... Ooh. It's, I think, 50s? No, it's 50s AD, I think. Something like I mean, that. it's 60s. a very brief but glorious campaign, Holmes, <laughs> is the answer. It's, it's AD 60, 61. But yeah. I'm not sure. yeah. But it's, okay. it's, it's less than a year, the actual campaign. We just don't quite know exactly which year it's in. But the interesting thing is there is archaeological evidence at Colchester and St Albans and London of mm. a fire taking place there. So whether Yeah, there is that there. red strata, isn't yeah. there? Mm. Oh yeah, I mean I think I I don't hold with the idea that Boudicca didn't exist and that because we have got the evidence of, I mean there's certainly there was a revolt because we've got the archaeological evidence of the three sites being destroyed um but but beyond that you know as 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 emma says um everything we know about boudicca um 
basically fills about <laughs> 10 a 4 pages and most of that is maybes <laughs> but, but that's an excellent point but this is the point i make with the, uh, the people at the ancient warfare podcast that's unfortunately how a lot of ancient history is yeah um, and, and, and you know I, I remember melvin bragg when he talks to people uh, like mary beard and other great people on um his program on the radio he's always frustrated by how the fact they're always imprecise well maybe <laughs> and he says don't you guys actually know your subject well no it's the sources that's the problem yeah having had two gins i would like to commend all three of you on making a living out of something when you don't know the answer to anything i think it's great as a first <laughs> world war historian i've always got someone crawling up my ass going well have you got a source to prove that yeah, yeah, what, partner, what, what, is what is this making a living of which you speak? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my partner is I, a modern historian and his favourite tease to me is that I've got two sources and none of them are accurate. Um, and my favourite tease to him is that if there's still people that remember it, it's not history, it's journalism. So. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I see. This is what we do with our time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially on lockdown. Right, okay. Yeah, exactly. As ever... Uh, Johnny and Holmes will now frantically be typing backwards and forward on our little WhatsApp group while they make their minds up. But we'll go around the room and say, if you cannot have the person that you voted for, who has won your vote? Mine is Alexander every day of the week. Emma? I'd probably go with Alexander as well. Um, Just because he's very young, he's very scary, and he just relentlessly doesn't stop. James? I I would have to go with Alexander as well because of for the arguments that have already been put forth, but also <laughs> the impact he had. I can see the argument for Augustus, but I've always saw him more as a leader than a warlord. And also there's the downsides to Augustus, because all I can think of is um, the three legions, for example, and what happened there. That's so, Quintilius yeah. Verus, and that's nothing to do with Augustus. He wanted those legions back. He <laughs> oh, banged sorry. his head against a wall for ages over it. <laughs> sorry, I'm getting mixed up then, but that, that's what pops in my head for some reason. Yeah. yeah, it's I'd say Alexander all day, every day. Clive? Well, I was, going to, I was quite taken by Augustus until I learnt he didn't actually do any warlording. Which rather kind of... Oh, but you did! <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of swung me in favour of Alex- Alexander, although obviously Xenophon should be number one. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, if you can't have uh, Alexander... Well, yes, I, I'm the only person who can't answer Alexander, so I'm going to be where... Um... If you don't I'm say in... Boudicca, I'm cutting you off right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an enormous admirer of uh, of Xenophon, but I think to be a warlord, you have to be actually be a political leader, and Xenophon kind of really isn't. Um, and I, Sun Tzu also falls down on that, on that basis. Uh, and then, oh, I'm very very hard to decide between the other three because all good cases have been made for all of them um not augustus i think in the end because he does spend the battle of actium puking into a bucket that's ancient journalism for you um i'm 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 gonna go for the achaemenids i'm gonna go for Darius the first oh well done alina if you had to pick someone who actually made an argument who who argued? Sorry. 
Pick a warlord. I don't know. I wasn't listening. Oh, I'm <laughs> James said, I'm going to go with whatever James said. Because he's another he's, vote for he's Darius. All right. Okay. Go back to Twitter. And <laughs> Lindsay. Well, I, it, it has to be Alexander for the simple reason that I think that's what Romans regarded as what a warlord looked like. Um, he, he was the, with the figure. I mean, that, 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 that basically is it. But I think he was a failed one. And that's why I like the idea of Alexander, the great failure. That's, that's kind of my favorite. But, but he was a warlord. Okay, judges, where stand you? I think we're I think we're unanimous. I think it's Alexander, to be honest. Boom. Um, Trajan, uh, honourable mentions for Trajan, and also Caesar Augustus. I think Caesar Augustus fell down slightly because, as others have indicated, he was more of a manager. He was very calculating, and he was very good at what he did at. And he seems to me like, in a career of forty years or whatever it was, he chose his fights wisely across a variety of levels. And if we were doing a different criteria he may well have won i have a very good book i'd write called augustus at war you might want to read it and you'll... <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i think um i i think i'm in agreement with that um caesar augustus comes third for me Trajan second and then uh, alexander the great on top we should also remember that alexander the great inspired one of the greatest sporting quotes ever when Alexander of Macedonia was 33, he cried salt tears because there were no, no more worlds to conquer. Eric Bristow is only 27. <laughs> <laughs> the great Sid Waddell had it right, so I think that there, there needs to be no more said on the subject. Oh, okay, well, I'm telling you now that the base ingredient is going to be honey in this cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> there will definitely be honey involved in some way, shape or form, and probably some spices to uh, reflect his eastward conquerings. Um, guys, thanks so much. Brilliant. Um, I feel like it's we've actually fun. had quite a decent debate tonight instead of just waffling as much as we usually do. Um, all, all candidates put across superbly. Thank you. But, uh, well, all except Sun Tzu, who is still rolling <laughs> over in his grave somewhere in China. He <laughs> 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 was slightly ropey as well. Or Boudin. Uh, <laughs> 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 I'm not the only one. I call sexist on you, Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, to be fair, at least Sun Tzu existed. This is fair. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Clive. Or did he? <laughs> Yeah, your I think there was a question yeah. over that as well. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, I mentioned it. Yeah, also, Alex, there yeah. definitely needs to be some Greek alcohol in that cocktail, considering. Oh, uh, yeah, but I'm thinking mm, Sambuca and honey mixed together. I will try. No, oh, no, no, I will try. Don't put racker in there. Don't put racker in there. Yeah, no, I'm going to try mixing Sambuca with honey and see what happens over the weekend. <laughs> feel it's my, my duty, it might cure the virus. Yeah, actually, I might. I might inadvertently discover a cure for coronavirus. Guys, thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> next week, we're going fantasy football, uh, historical fantasy football, which, <laughs> Shut up, Alina, which uh, should be a great laugh. We've got the Football History Boys coming back and some other uh, football bloggers and uh, one of BBC's commentators as well. So we will debate the best players uh, from across all times. I think the only, the, everyone... 
will have been retired by 2009 that we mentioned and uh, there's the rules are done so that we have to reflect from the whole of football history so we're really looking forward to that um, until then we'll we'll catch you at the weekend uh, we have tomorrow Dan Snow doing a Q&A we've reversed the tables on him for once and we're asking him questions um, and anyone that tried to sneak in a difficult one and thought they'd stump him he destroys you and uh, on Sunday we talked to Sean Bean Yay! And Jason Falky, wow. who was Rifleman Harris, about life-making shot. Um, and we have a wow. Napoleonic historian, Zach White, with us as well to answer your questions on that programme. Uh, until then, stay safe. If you possibly can, stay at home. Uh, this is Nighthawk signing off. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.